I do realize that if it is new to you, that asking you to believe that the earth is only a few thousand years old is basically like asking you to believe that the world is flat. And I think we need to remember that, because if there are those that have grown up with this, sometimes we forget how challenging this is for people that have not heard about this and had, had it taught to you. And that really, it can sound crazy. It can sound like a conspiracy theory. It can be a tough sell. And I acknowledge that. And as we talk about this topic of the age of the earth, I, I do not want this to keep you from uh, coming to Christ, thinking that you have to have this exactly figured out or land on a certain position before you can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, it's not a prerequisite for you coming to Christ. In fact, you actually might need to uh, come to Christ first, to be saved, to start having your mind and your worldview changed and modified uh, by Christ and by his scripture. And this might be something that you need to uh, grow in your worldview uh, before this is something that you'd be able to uh, consider well. And I think that's okay, because a specific view on this is ultimately not the end game, but I do hope it is something that you will consider and that you will keep considering. And I do think that as your worldview and your presuppositions change, it can be something that maybe at once you thought was just completely implausible, and you start to realize more and more, okay, it seems like there's something to this. This does seem more plausible than I used to think. But we have the big question. You know, does science contradict Scripture? Does science mean that uh, this book is just antiquated, that it is definitely not inerrant, uh, it's full of some old myths, and the answer to that uh, is uh, no, it is, there's not a contradiction. Science rightly understood, the facts of this world rightly understood. It can be a challenge to put those uh, things together, and in this life we may never actually uh, do that. Um, and again, uh, it is not a requirement to be saved, but I do think that confidence in God's world is something that is, God's word is something that is definitely vital. And it's important to believe what God says about creation and to develop a Christian worldview. There's so many things that come from this. So, we're going to talk again about the, the age of the earth uh, this morning. Uh, we talked about evolution uh, last week. Next week, we're going to be talking about the creation of uh, Adam and Eve, and specifically the, the creation of mankind. Is it important to believe in a literal Adam and Eve? I'm arguing next week, yes it is. What about all these things and fossils and hominids? And Well, we'll talk about that stuff next week. But today we're going to look at uh, the, kind of the age of the earth. And before we get into this, I want to show you what this is, uh, the doctrinal position of First Baptist Church and kind of where we stand on this. Uh, this is what uh, I believe as well. So I'll bring this up for you. And it says, We believe in the Genesis account of creation, and that is, it is to be accepted literally, and not allegorically or figuratively. That man was created directly in God's own image and after his own likeness. That man's creation was not a matter of evolution or evolutionary change of species or development through terminable periods of time from lower to higher forms and that all animals and vegetable life was made directly and God's established law was that they should bring forth only after their kind. I tried to do some research to see how long this statement of faith goes back and kind of where it came from. And I was able to find a pamphlet that was published by the Grand Rapids Association of Regular Baptist Churches. 
that stated that this was going back at least to the year 1952, and I'm not exactly sure where it got written before that, but that's what I was able to uh, track down. Now, in that statement on creation, we've added a few things, uh, additional paragraphs about marriage and sexuality, uh, but this is a statement that we have on uh, creation. One of the things it does definitely say is that well, we don't hold that there was evolution, that at least macro evolution, we talked about that last week, and that we believe that the Genesis counts be taken literally. Now, that doesn't mean like a wooden literalism where there's no figures of speech. We recognize that you know, normal interpretation, there, there are figures of speech, but that's different than taking everything as myth or figuratively or just that the whole thing is, a, is an allegory. And we've talked about that in some of these messages as well, so I'm not gonna go back over that, but just realize there are different interpretations. Some that say, well, this is, it's all just a bunch of myth, or it's all meant to be taken, just everything is symbolic, and we say, no, we don't believe that. And also views uh, that just say that everything in Genesis 1 is just meant to be taken as a literary device, that it's just, uh, we're supposed to understand that it's just, uh, something uh, talking about uh, the, the framework hypothesis and at the end of the day saying all we're supposed to get out of it is that God created and everything else is uh, just uh, not details that the text was really meant to communicate. And uh, I assert to you that the text is meant to communicate things and we need to look at what it does communicate. So what we're going to do is we are going in this message, we're going to look through three different views on this, and these three different views are ones that at least see themselves as literal interpretations. Now, as we go through this, you might agree or disagree with each of these if they should be considered that, uh, but I think it's important to realize that uh, they at least see themselves as trying to take the words seriously and, and literally and working through it. And as we go through this, I'm going to be, I'm going to try and do my best to explain uh, each one uh, well. I'm going, with, a, with charity, I'm going to try and talk about at least some of the strengths of each of these views, but also difficulties with each of these views, and there are difficulties. And we'll have to decide, and you'll have to decide, are the difficulties enough where you say, I can't go there with this one, or to say, well, this is a difficulty, but the strengths and what I see in Scripture still outweighs those difficulties, that they're challenges that could be overcome. So, the first one that we're going to talk about is one that is called the, the gap theory. And in the gap theory, it states that there was a, a gap of unknown time. That's why it's called the, the gap theory. Not to be confused, you know, with the uh, Banana Republic theory, by the way. The gap theory, I shouldn't have even made that joke. That's, man. <laughs> the gap theory, uh, un gap of unknown time between God's original creation in Genesis 1-1 and the uh, formless and void condition of the world that's in Genesis 1-2. So in this theory, uh, that there is a, uh, well, like I said, a, a gap between these two verses. So to read again the first two verses of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so in this theory, there is uh, verse 1 happened, and then verse 2 happened sometime after that. We don't know how long it was, and maybe it was a very, very long time 
that it happened kind of afterwards. And because of this, uh, we're going to see there was events that happened during that period that led to the world being formless and void. But in this view, it wasn't created formless and void in verse 1. It doesn't tell us that. It became formless and void later on. Now, just give some background uh, for this and, and a lot of these views. You know, in the, you know, the age of the Enlightenment, and especially when you got to about the 1800s, uh, geologists were presenting a lot of evidence that many people found very persuasive that the Earth was old. Uh, they pointed to fossils that were being found. They pointed to uh, different layers uh, that you saw in, um, in the Earth. You know, if you go to the Grand Canyon and you see all the different layers, and uh, the, what was being presented is that, well, these layers were all laid down over uh, long, long periods of time, over millions of years. And so the thought was that the Earth is very old, and Christians were trying to grapple with, well, how do we understand this? Uh, is this a, is it a contradiction? Is science contradicting scripture? And there were, you know, atheist scientists that really wanted to discredit scripture. Say, you know, your scripture seems to point here that the earth is only a few thousand years old, but look at here, here's all this evidence that it is, uh, you know, millions and uh, maybe even far longer than that uh, years old. And some of it was motivated by people that, you know, they wanted a reason to not have to think about the Bible. But there seemed to be evidence of this, and Christians were wondering how to handle this. And notice that this wasn't just, you know, the, the liberals uh, that were, you know, squishes and willing to give in to everything, but also Bible-believing Christians trying to understand how can we interpret this and wondering, is there a way that Scripture and what they were seeing from geology could be meshed together? And I think I want to point out, too, I think there is a point where this is okay to a degree, isn't it? Uh, the assumption used to be that the sun revolved around the earth, okay? I mean, that was just the assumption, and just uh, you're reading scripture, it looks like that. Most people assume that. That's how it looked from the surface. You see the sun move across the sky. It looks like we stay still and the sun moved. And there might be, there's some people that still believe that, but most have come to accept that uh, you can be a Christian, you can believe scripture, and recognize that the earth actually revolves around the sun, it's the other way around. And so there are some times where we need to uh, take a look at things and wonder if our interpretation of scripture is correct. Again, we're going to see that can go too far, which is, your, uh, in, which is in control scripture or uh, what you're being told. Uh, but the God who gave us the Bible also did create this world, and the two really shouldn't conflict. And I think at the end, when we understand everything perfectly, uh, from, from God's perspective, he explains things, we'll, we'll see, oh, okay, this is how these things work together. I think one way to think about this, as you look at this issue today, or you look at uh, you know, evolution, or you look at uh, you know, the, does the sun move around the earth, is... One question is, is a different reading even possible? And if it is possible, is there enough scientific evidence to point to it uh, to go against what maybe you thought before? Now, this is why I don't think evolution makes sense, because I don't see a way for evolution to be even possibly fit with the text of Scripture, with God creating Adam from the dust of the ground. 
But this is why I do think it's okay for us to believe that the earth revolves around the sun because it would be possible to view scripture both ways and I think there's enough evidence that the earth revolves around the sun. But now the question is, how does that fit with the, the age of the earth? So again, some people were trying to grapple with this and figure it out and some with very good intentions. Uh, Thomas Chalmers of the University of Edinburgh was one of the, of the Free Church of Scotland, one of the ones credited with popularizing this view. Um, I even found a, a quote where Charles Spurgeon was uh, preaching and used, uh, alluded to uh, gap theory. Um, this view was popularized probably the most uh, by the Schofield Bible. And so the Schofield Reference Bible took this uh, position written in 1907. Uh, but even Ari Torrey, of founder of Moody, one of the founders of Moody Bible Institute in Biola, wrote The Fundamentals, Held to Gap Theory. And by the mid-20th century, if this may seem kind of foreign to us, but by the mid-20th century, so not that long ago, it was actually the standard interpretation, not through the liberals, but through fundamentalists, with, through fundamentalism. So just having that in mind, thinking um, more of this view and, and how it kind of works, in this view, God's original creation was ideal at the beginning, but then there was some kind of catastrophe between verse 1 and 2, and that was because of Satan's rebellion, because of Lucifer, that God created, God created uh, the world good, created Lucifer good, we would agree with that, and that there was some kind of fall of Satan. And scripture doesn't give us a lot of detail where this happens, and they place this between verse 1 and 2, and then the earth then became formless and void, uh, because of this, it was punishment for what Satan did and therefore needed to be restored from ruin. And so in this view, the foremost and void, this is uh, judgment upon the world because of this. Um, so and we're going to have to keep moving uh, because there's a lot of material to, to cover today. I'll just give you kind of a main strength of this view and I think a reason why fundamentalists, at least for a time period, uh, really gravitated towards this, is the view gives a possible explanation for the apparent age of the earth. Uh, things like these uh, geological layers, fossil records, uh, explaining where, where, the, where these dinosaur bones came from, and the thought was that, well, this is explained because the world goes much older than uh, when God created Adam and Eve and the, the six days of creation there, that there was a whole prehistory before that, and that maybe, you know, all the different layers and uh, dinosaur bones, that's from that before time. So there's a possible explanation. The biggest difficulty in this is that Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't actually say that there was a time gap or a catastrophe before one in, between verses 1 and 2. And depending how you interpret this, it, you might still say, well, it's a possibility, it could be. Uh, there are many young earth... Um, uh, people that would say that it, it doesn't allow this absolutely at all. Uh, but looking through this, at least it doesn't specifically say that this is uh, what happened. In Hebrew, the words used uh, don't mean that the original creation became formless and void. That's not what is used in the passage. And I'm not going to get into the, all the Hebrew here and uh, the difference between a wav consecutive and a wav disjunctive, but the uh, Hebrew, people that know Hebrew uh, talk about this and say well, it doesn't necessarily uh, lead to that, it doesn't put a gap between these things, and some would say that it, it just doesn't even allow for that. 
And also, in the view, it uses different words for creation, uh, bara and asha, and has a, a big distinction between the two, that one is for original creation and the other just means to, to do or make or can be restore. There's some truth to that, uh, but also the words are used fairly interchangeably as well, so it's hard to really draw that from this. And the words uh, for the tohu, wovohu, about uh, formless and void, there are places in scripture where they do refer to judgment. Um, Isaiah 45, 18, Jeremiah 4, 23 support this understanding. Uh, but think also the words in themselves wouldn't have to have that meaning as well too. That could mean just God created the world formless and void in a neutral sense, uh, that it, and it was kind of undifferentiated matter and then he needed to do the work of uh, now putting it together. Again, like all the Legos were on the table mixed up, but now he was uh, forming this and beginning this building project. So, I mean, there are other uh, things we could go through too, uh, different problems, uh, how this would work. Was the sun destroyed? Was it recreated? Was it just covered? A question that people would have was, is it, if this is the case, um, how do you say that this was a very good creation? Um, I guess you could say good as new, uh, but there's a difference between good as new, refurbished, and, and very good. So you have to weigh kind of these arguments. You know, believing this view, I think, doesn't make someone a heretic. And there are good people that uh, hold to this view. I just think it isn't clearly demanded by Genesis 1, and this view isn't as popular as it once was. So, so view. You got the, uh, the gap theory. And the next one we're going to look at is called uh, the day-age view, or sometimes called progressive creationism. And, I mean, I don't uh, know how much, you know, different terms can be used. I don't know how much I care for. These days it seems everything, you know, progressive is not something I want to be a part of. I don't even want to wear progressive lenses. But, <laughs> but the point of this is it is something that is uh, still creationism, uh, but in this view... Basically, the days of creation are long periods. So as I've written here, in this, this view, God did not create life using evolution. There are different old earth views that are okay with evolution. We talked about theistic evolution last time, and that it, I believe you should not hold to that. Uh, but in this view, uh, they don't believe that God created using evolution. However, the days in Genesis 1 are extremely long periods of time. They're ages, or eons even. Uh, sometimes different lengths, in which God formed and filled the earth. And so the world, in this view, appears very old because it is very old. And so there's uh, different proponents of this. Um, Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe is one of the main proponents of this. And um, I, I've read a lot of his work, familiar uh, with this viewpoint. There's things I appreciate about it, even though I wouldn't necessarily agree with everything. Uh, Old Testament professor Gleason Archer, no relation. Um, this is a good book on apologetics I, that I still recommend called I Do Not Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norm Geisler and Frank Turek. Um, overall, still good. I still recommend it. It does come from a day-age perspective, so uh, just something to, to know. Um, and there's many others. Uh, John Lennox, many people in the intelligent design movement who I still benefit a lot from their work, and I think we can. But uh, many, not all, do hold to this uh, perspective. Um, I also found William Jennings Bryan, if you know who he is, he actually held to this. This is, uh, kind of surprised me. 
So in this view, again, there's no evolution that takes place, but critical to this view uh, is that the word for uh, day in Hebrew, which is yam, which we would spell with our letters Y-O-M, they would say it has a variety of different meanings. And not only that, they would say it has a variety of, of even more than one literal meaning. And that even in the first chapter of Genesis, you could see this. And so, uh, we'll look at that in a little bit. But in this view, at least um, in some, they would say that God created the world using the, the Big Bang, not in the Big Bang the way the science says, but that God created the world. Sometimes they'll even refer to uh, some of the passages in the scripture that talk about God stretching out the heavens as uh, that's a reference to the Big Bang. God created that, that was Genesis 1, and then put all matter into existence. And then in their interpretation, the, the way that it works is they say, you have to imagine that you're on the surface of the earth and how would things appear to you from that perspective of the surface of the earth? And that... Uh, it is true that uh, it talks about in verse 2 that the Spirit of God is hovering over the, the waters, and so how would things look? And so in, in this interpretation, they say as you go through the different times, that it actually, Scripture roughly corresponds with what science, uh, at least the predominant view of science, talks about how the earth formed. That you would have the earth first as this molten uh, kind of, you know, ball that's out there and uh, just thick gas all around it. And we say that day one was basically God thinning the atmosphere or allowing the atmosphere to thin enough so that it goes from opaque, where no light comes through, to at least translucent, not transparent, but translucent where you can see light. And therefore they say that's the interpretation of God created light. And then as you go through this, I say that the next day that uh, the atmosphere clears, uh, at least at the surface level, so now that uh, it's transparent, at least on the surface, which is where you're viewing this from, not from, from space. And so now you would see sky with clouds above and the thick cloud cover, and you would see the waters that are below. And over time, you'd have the continents form, and it kind of walks through the days in this way. And the way that, in this view, they explain the, the stars and the sun and moon, they would say that those, are been there for, those have been there from, uh, from the beginning uh, for, at this point, you know, billions of years, uh, but you couldn't see them until the atmosphere cleared enough where it went from translucent, just seeing the light come through, to now it clears and it is actually uh, transparent, so now you are able to uh, <coughs> yeah, have the... Um, actually see the stars, and they would say again that the, the word that's used there is kind of loose and doesn't necessarily have to mean that God, you know, created the sun and moon and stars on day four, but that uh, he kind of made them or did them and that you could see them. And then the creation of, uh, you know, plant life and then life in the sea and then life on land and then finally humanity, uh, they would argue that it corresponds roughly with uh, the geological record with um, most of the fossils being you know, in the sea and these lower life forms and plants and then you have uh, life in the sea and then land animals and finally, finally humans. And so some find that very persuasive. Uh, Hugh Ross says that he was actually uh, converted because he uh, saw what he saw in uh, Genesis 1 matching up with how he interpreted uh, what science was saying as well. So this was the, the view. Uh, again, life in this view didn't evolve by survival of the fittest, 
but there would have been plant and animal death before the fall because of the food chain and what we see in the fossil records. Um, the Bible very clearly states that human death did not take place before the fall, but in this view it allows for plant and animal death. They also say that the six works, the six days of creation are a pattern uh, of six to one, but not necessarily uh, exact days that, that we work. So going through this as far as, as some bullet points, uh, the Hebrew word for day, yam, can also mean an undefined long period of time. There is truth to that. So again, for all these views, I want to present both the, the strengths and the weaknesses, because uh, part of it, I don't want people uh, to leave and feel like, well, you gave a strawman presentation, or you only told one side of this, because uh, I think that's damaging in the long run. And uh, the truth is that the word day, yam, in Hebrew does have several meanings. And in fact, in the very first occurrence in verse 5, it refers to just the light portion of the day. So not the full 24 hours, but just the part where it's day, and then there's, uh, he called the light day, and he called the darkness night. Um, it can also mean a longer period of time. And colloquially, we say that too, you know, back in my day, or I'd say back in the day of Abraham. In fact, Genesis 2.4 says, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, referring to the whole creation week. And there's also references to the day of the Lord, uh, which is also more than just a day. Um, and again, well, well, we'll get to uh, replies to that kind of later on. So, in the view, they're, they're correct that it can mean a long period of time. And they would say, well, in this view, it means a very long period, millions or sometimes even billions of years. In this view, too, there seem to be hints in the text that the days in Genesis 1 are not solar days, not normal days. And some that are commonly given is that there's no sun until day four. They say, well, it can't be a solar a Sunday uh, by definition because there is no sun. And that morning and evening are not morning and evening in the sense we normally think of them as, you know, sun up and sun down, uh, but it has to refer to something else. Uh, another thing that's said is that there's too much to do on day six. That if you look at day six, that God creates, uh, you know, all these animals, you know, and say, well, that must have taken a lot of time for God to do that. And then God creates Adam, and then God has to have Adam, you know, name all of the different animals and how many, you know, thousands of species there are. And for Adam to, you know, to study these species and come up with a, a name and do this, that would have taken a long time to do this. And then finally he has to realize that there's no helper suitable for him. Uh, God has to put him to sleep, do this operation to bring Eve, you know, out of his rib and fashion Eve. And it seems like that took a long time. You know, he's fashioning her, really, you know, working hard and a long process. And uh, so there's all these things that need to happen. I say, well, it's too much to happen in just uh, one 24-hour period. And they also point out that there's no ending of day seven. They say, well, day seven seems to be longer than 24 hours because in all the others, there's the, the formula that there was evening and morning, you know, day one. Uh, but you don't see that in day four. And that in Hebrews chapter four, it seems to talk about God's rest being ongoing. So these are hints that in this view, they say that there's uh, something else going on. So a strength to this view is that it corresponds fairly well with many current scientific views about the age of the world. 
And so I can understand the draw to this. There's a part of me that uh, kind of wants this to be true. It would make things a lot easier in many ways. Um, these time frames seem to fit fairly well with the, at least the standard scientific interpretation that those are dominant today. It actually even improves on some things. You know, science can't say what caused the Big Bang. Um, in this view, they say, well, God is the one that caused this. And science can't explain why. We saw last week, even in the fossil record, uh, the different animal species and different things seem to appear suddenly, kind of fully formed without these transitions. And in this view, they say, well, the reason for that is God created in these, these bursts. And so that explains the Cambrian, Cambrian explosion and other things and how life could appear without undirected natural processes. I think we need to note, though, it doesn't fit perfectly with what science, at least the common science, uh, dictates otherwise. Uh, for example, uh, the order of animals. Most would, would not say that, that you have birds being created before the insects. So there, there are problems. Sometimes people have argued that the days need to overlap or God doing other things. Uh, so it fits fairly well, but not perfectly, and that is a, a strength to this, um, this view. A big difficulty, it is the less natural reading of Genesis 1. So even if you hold to this view, I think we understand it is, this is less natural. Uh, it's not the way that you would just normally read this and look at it. And I see too, uh, when we get to the young earth view, uh, most of the arguments for the young earth view are also going to be arguments against you know, this view as well. But I want to bring up what I think is the biggest one, and for me this is a real sticking point, is the biggest difficulty of, of all of them is uh, this would have to have animal death and disease before the fall. And as we're going to see as we keep going through Genesis, that death is the result of being in a fallen world, not the original good, very good world that God created from the beginning. He told Adam and Eve, the day you eat of this, uh, uh, he told Adam, the day you eat of this, uh, the forbidden fruit, you will die. Romans 5.12 clearly talks about death being the result of the fall. So, uh, Again, their reply to this would be that in Romans 5.12 definitely says that there's no human death before the fall, and they would agree with that, that there was no human death. Uh, that's where the theistic evolutionists, they are okay with some kind of, well, human or humanoid death, but in, to give to their credit, that would be an area of agreement. But they would still, in this view, be okay with animal death because of, again, the food chain and the, the fossil records. And so to accept this, you would have to be okay with this animal death before, uh, before the fall. And young earth creationists point out that this is hard sell to square with a very good creation. It's hard to square a very good creation with uh, one that is uh, nature that is red in tooth and claw. Also too, Genesis 1, notice in verse 30, it does talk about uh, the diet that is given for humans and for animals at that point. And look what it says, Genesis 1.30, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And this uh, seems to state that uh, in the original creation, at least before the fall, uh, that plants were given uh, for food, and that's what was intended, not just for humans, uh, but for the, the animal world as well. 
And I know there might be a lot of questions as far as, you know, how this works, but we have to grapple with what that says in Genesis 1, 30 there. Now, it does say there's, and, and young earth creationists will admit this too, there's, if you think of some kinds of death, there's, there's going to be cell death, there's death in our cells, but that's not the same as like a whole organism dying. There's plant death, and that would be okay, because plants are a whole different level than, than even animals, and of course humans are a whole different level than the animals as well. And something we would say that even lower types of animals, uh, that it's, it, that's a different thing than some of the higher forms that would be described as, uh, with the word nefesh being uh, kind of living things uh, in scripture. Uh, but this would be a big you know, difference and one that you really have to kind of weigh and think through. So it's a major difficulty. Now, if you're filling out your bulletin at this point, you may say, well, there's only two options. I gotta pick between these two. Well, there is, if you turn over your bulletin, there's a third option, in case you were concerned about that. But I think this is a good time for a little bit of, a little bit of history, too. Because in studying for this, uh, I was able to find some history about not just Christians overall, but specifically Baptists, and especially in our circles, and how these views have uh, been accepted or changed over the years. And I found an article uh, from the, the Baptist Bulletin uh, titled, The Days of Creation, How Our GARBC Views Evolved. You know, we are not part of, well, the GARBC is not technically a, a denomination. It's a fellowship of churches, but it's the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. We fellowship with these churches. Uh, but I want to read you a little bit from this article because I think it is interesting. And also, you're going to, some of you, when I read this, you might notice the name Charles Alber that's quoted in here. And he was uh, one of the interim pastors uh, immediately before my time. Let me quote a little. It says, Before the Genesis Flood was published, it's a book by John Wickham and Henry Morris, published in 1961. So, saying before this book, it says, GARBC churches did not necessarily believe in a literal 24 hour creation day. Well, this was a common view, it was not unusual for a pastor or college professor to embrace the day-age view of creation. At the time, regular Baptists were not interested in writing their doctrinal statements to exclude either group. Retired GARBC pastor Charles Elber recalls the most controversial question at his ordination in 1963. David Otis Fuller began by asking, where do you stand on the sufficiency of scripture? And then followed with, where do you stand in the days of creation? Quote, at the time, there were only two alternatives, Elber remembers, either the gap theory or the day-age theory. Leon Wood was my Old Testament prof in seminary, and he promoted a day-age position. Fuller promoted a gap theory between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2. I was schooled in this and knew the, scripture off supported, I knew the scriptural support offered for both. Corner between proponents of two difficult positions, Albert answered the best way he could, I don't know. He said, I've got a problem with both views, Albert recalled saying to the ordination council. They both required death before the fall of man. Always in the back of my mind was the problem of death before sin in Romans 5.12. He keeps stating, a lot of people accused the day-age theorists in our association of believing in theistic evolution. They didn't. And there were never any local flood guys in our camp either. But the possibility of theistic evolution is why so many of us were 
suspicious of these positions. After the ordination exam in 1963, one of the participants approached Elbert and suggested he read the Genesis flood, which he subsequently did. Quote, I ended up believing their position was the most feasible, Elber says. So, with that in mind, some interesting history, talking about uh, young earth creationism. In this view, the earth was created by God over a period of six earth rotations, approximately 6,000 to maybe 10,000 years ago. Again, the book mentioned by Wickham and Morris, The Genesis Flood, 1961, really revitalized the young earth position for conservative Christians. Uh, that's not to say they invented this, and it went way back, but it, uh, they revitalized this. Uh, so they are some of the, the forefathers of this uh, with the Institute for Creation Research. Also, obviously, well, Answers in Genesis, doing a lot of work with that. Ken Ham and uh, the Creation Museum, the, the Ark Encounter, and neat, really neat places to visit. I'm using here the place, uh, I talk about earth rotations, or saying uh, six uh, earth rotational days. Because if you just say, well, a standard day or normal day, people say, well, there could be differences. And if you say 24 hours, sometimes people say, well, how do you know it was exactly 24 hours? There's time dilation and things were different. And, and there's some truth to that. Um, I was reading a book by Cornelius Van Dam called In the Beginning, a recent book. He's a young earth creationist. And he made the point that um, we should have humility on the exact length of the early days. Uh, they were extraordinarily special, and we can't comprehend the process. How does this work? You know, when, uh, you know, objects in space are, are being put into uh, existence. And he said, uh, the days, he thinks, are still measured in hours, not eons, but they may not have been exact stopwatch 24-hour days. Um, and we shouldn't insist on that kind of level of uh, uh, precision, although still that they're roughly close to it. Uh, but I think that's helpful too, because there's things you know, that Einstein has taught about uh, time and how it stretches, and you have to give a little bit of allowance for that. Um, John Morris, I mentioned him. He's like, well, I didn't, he's the son of Henry Morris, uh, reading his book on the young earth. His conviction is that the earth is about 6,000 years, and um, it has to be at least that old if you take the genealogies and, and total them up. You know, uh, James Usher famously gave the date for creation as 4004 BC. Uh, some allow for some gaps in the genealogies. We'll talk about that later on in Genesis. Um, I'm not super worried about that, but uh, I think with that, you can really only push it out to maybe 10,000 years, maybe 12,000, John Morris says. Uh, some that try to push it out, like the creation of man to like 150, uh, you know, thousand years. I, I can't, I just don't see that. I, I don't see it stretching that far. So this would be a relatively young earth. So let me give you some kind of bullet points, kind of talk through this. And again, we're just scratching the surface on this. And so one of the, uh, the most important things from the beginning is that wherever else in the Old Testament where the word yam is used, remember that's the word for day, Wherever it is, it can mean multiple things. Okay, we admit that. Uh, but wherever it is used with a number, like saying day one, the first day, something like that, uh, it always means what we would refer to as a 24-hour day or a day of Earth's rotation. 
It's always referring to that. The word yam is modified by a number 359 times in the Old Testament, and in all of these occurrences, it always, always means a time it takes for the earth to revolve around once. And also, when evening and morning are used in conjunction with it, it never refers to a long period of time. So that's, that's a weighty thing to consider. I also want to say, in replying to some of the old earth arguments, uh, the hints that these were not solar days, um, one, they said that, well, there's no sun until day four. Okay, uh, but, and there's something, I guess you can't technically call them solar days, but God created light on day one, and so all you really need is light, and if you do have the, the world that is revolving around, then from light to light is going to be a day. So you would still have that even if you didn't have, um, didn't have the sun. One that we just mentioned is that, say, there was too much to do on day six. And there was a lot that happened there. Uh, God creating uh, the, you know, the different, the animal life. I mean, he had created the uh, fish and the birds before that, but there's a lot of different, you know, land animals that, that he created. And then he creates Adam. He has Adam name all of the animals. And then there's the uh, fashioning on Eve, uh, which we believe happened on that day too because it says that God created them male and female. And so I think it's packing that all into day six. Uh, but I think there's some things we need to consider. Uh, Adam, you know, he was created well-rested, okay? Uh, he wasn't up playing video games the night before. He wasn't tired from all this work. He was, cre- he was fresh and ready to go. And I don't know about you, but there's some days where I get up in the morning and it's like I brush my teeth and it's like, what, an hour went by? What just happened? And there's other times where you get going and you are productive and you're getting stuff done. I think Adam, he is, he is fresh, he is ready to go. There's nothing that says that, you know, God waited halfway through the day to create the animals. Also, how long would that have taken God? Uh, if he can create them in a day, he can create them pretty much instantly. So I don't think it needs to be this long process. Again, Adam was well-rested. He didn't have to spend time getting dressed in the morning. Okay, that's something. And he wasn't wasting his time on Facebook. So you got that going. God created him and said, I'm going to bring you these animals, and you're going to name them. Uh, But serious though, when we look at the actual text, God brought the animals to him. Let me read Genesis 2, 19 through 20. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Notice out of the ground, not evolution. Uh, Every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So Adam didn't have to go find these. It was the same with like Noah. God made them kind of come and parade by him. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave name to all the livestock and to the birds of heavens and every beast of the field. Notice what it says. It talks about three different kinds. Livestock, birds, and beasts of the field. So he didn't need to go and name all the fish. He didn't name every insect. I think, uh, you know, species-wise, it's mostly beetles, technically. But he didn't need to do all that. And it probably wasn't even every, like, species. I think it was broad categories or, or kinds that he's naming. You know, thinking about this more, uh, it's not as if, you know, he is having to create um, language. I think God created Adam with language, with ability to communicate. That was part of his uh, original, you know, software configuration. Uh, not so, Well, who knows what they spoke, you know, before the Tower of Babel. 
Uh, but this means that he wasn't having to come up with words. It wasn't like the hippo comes by and he's like, uh, hippo, hippo. You know, he's not coming up with language. You know, so he's accessing whatever makes sense to him from whatever God gave him. Say, yep, that's a hippo. Next. And this could have, I think, happened pretty quickly and kept it going. So probably it could have happened in just, honestly, a few hours. Think of this too. Why did God have Adam name the animals? You ever think about that? I mean, God, I'm sure, had names for them. God gave Adam language and maybe Adam was just, you know, accessing, you know, different words that he used and assigned to them, and maybe it's the ones that God had. You know, oh, yeah, a hippo, here it is. Um, but I think there were some deeper things that were going on with this, why God had him do it. And I think one is that, remember, God, when he created them, he said, you're to have dominion over all of the animals. And naming the animals was his first act of showing dominion that he is in charge of these animals. He names them. You know, parents, we name our, we name our children because they're our kids. We have authority over them. So by God delegating to Adam the responsibility to name the animals was a sign that he was showing his dominion over the animal creation. By the way, you ever notice that God, uh, we don't name God, he names himself because we don't have authority over him. So God was uh, having Adam do this as an act of uh, authority and dominion. And also through this, you read the next verse, Adam realizes, oh, there's a lot of animals here. They all seem to have uh, partners. Hey, who do I have? And he realized that he, he didn't have a suitable partner. And it goes into that to uh, the, the creation of Eve. And we'll be getting into this as when we get to, God willing, Genesis uh, chapter 2 eventually. Uh, but all this to say, God could, or Adam could have created, I think, the animals in that time period pretty easily. Uh, again, it's not every species. He had help from the Lord. And then he realizes he needs a helpmate. God puts him to sleep. This wasn't a 48-hour surgery. Uh, God puts him to sleep, takes the rib, crafts it into Eve, and there you go. That's the sixth day. Also, to say that there's no ending for day seven, yeah, day seven was special. And it doesn't talk about morning and evening, and maybe that sets it apart as special. Um, we shouldn't press the analogy too far. Uh, God did not, it's not as if God went back to work creating the next day. Ah, oh, break's over, got to create. No, he was done. He took his seventh day as a day of rest, a day of Sabbath. Uh, and after this, he works by preserving the world by his providence. Uh, but as far as creating, um, he had his day off. And then he retired from that. Okay, so there is an ongoing day of rest in a sense. Uh, but I, I think that doesn't show that all these days need to be not uh, rotational days. Another big thing to consider, talk about the word yam, um, but also what God was doing here. Man's work week, as it's written in scripture, directly corresponds to God's work week. That there are six days of work and then one day of rest. I know we're used to our two-day weekends, but originally it was six days of work and then you rested at the end. Uh, and also day one was uh, what we consider Sunday. The last day for the Hebrews, the day of rest was Saturday. That was the Jewish Sabbath. Um, you know, I think it's interesting. Christ rose again on, on Sunday, on the first day of the week, because you got a new creation now going in Christ. 
But God is uh, giving us this work pattern. You think, why didn't God just, he could have created the world just instantly. It's not as God needed a billion years. God didn't even need six days to create this world. In fact, Augustine, he, uh, yes, he did not believe uh, that it was a literal six-day creation, but he also didn't believe that it was long periods. He believed God actually created instantly. We would disagree, but God could have done that. And I think one of the reasons he created over a six-day period is to give us this pattern. And uh, the most natural pattern uh, is that it is we're to work six days and one day of rest, uh, like God does. Exodus 20:11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. I know sometimes Monday can feel like an eternity. That's true. Uh, but the most natural reading of this is um, that these are 24-hour days. Now, the old uh, earth guys would say, well, there's still a pattern. The pattern's just what mattered. And sometimes there's the old, in the Old Testament, there's patterns of like releasing a slave in the seventh year. Uh, but as far as the work week in the Sabbath, it seems more, with uh, Exodus 20, it's more consistently referring to 24-hour days. All right. Another important thing to realize God created the world as a mature creation. Thus, it has the appearance of being older than it it is. Further, the effects of the fall and the global flood have been misinterpreted as evidence of an ancient earth. What we mean by a mature creation is something that gives the the appearance of, it's going to have the appearance of age because it was created mature. Uh, I think it's better to say that than just appearance of age because that can sound like God was being deceptive, Uh, but you realize Adam, he wasn't created as a newborn infant, right? Otherwise, he would have died and there goes humanity. He was created as an adult, and we don't know if he was 30 or give or take or whatever he was, but he was created an adult, Eve was created an adult. Uh, You know, there's a debate, well, there's one uh, that wrote a book on this, um, has the Latin word for belly button, basically saying that, you know, hey, Adam was created probably with a belly button, even though he never was in his mom connected to an umbilical cord. And so if that's the case, it would be just a sign of uh, him being created kind of with the appearance of age. Now, we don't know about his belly button or not, but he would have looked, if you, you know, were dating him or, you know, trying to give him a date, if he got pulled over while he was, you know, speeding and the police officer wrote something down, he wouldn't say, well, it looks like he was born yesterday. Uh, He'd say, no, he's like 30 or whatever he is. So he would look old. And so there could be other things in the world too. I mean, even like hair, you know, it grows and it's, you can determine what you've eaten or if you've taken drugs, you know, by what's in your hair follicles. Uh, and so, I mean, they had hair, they had things that were the appearance of age. Mature creation can account for a lot of things, but not everything. And I think we definitely want to say there was not deception involved. So I don't think we say, well, there were never dinosaurs. God planted those dinosaur bones just to test you. I think that, that seems deceptive. Also, in this point, there's other things that happened. There's the creation itself, uh, the fall, we'll talk about that. There's effects and maybe things changed in the fall. There was a cursing of this world that happened uh, with death and other things too. Uh, plant life change, we know that. And maybe other changes as well. But then the flood is a big deal too. And if a worldwide catastrophe uh, like the flood, if that happens, that is going to mess things up. That's going to have a lot of different effects. 
And so a lot of things I think really can be accounted for by the, the global flood that we're gonna see later on in the book of Genesis. A number of years ago, um, Eric and I went, uh, my son went uh, hiking at Zion National Park. And so <clears throat> you go into the park and there's this big uh, canyon that you're going into and you have to take a, a bus, you can't just drive into it yourself. And each time we do it, it would play a recording as you're going back and it would talk about you know, different features and it would mention you know, this uh, canyon was carved over millions of years by the river running through it. And it's like, okay, we always get that. Uh, but at one point I noticed in the audio description that played on this loop, it talked about, it said, there was a time a few years ago where there was this big uh, rainstorm and because of this, the floods came through and it actually carved out uh, a big giant trench underneath the road and they had to like, uh, you know, fill this in because it messed up something so bad. And I leaned over to Eric and I said, sounds like if you get enough rain all at once, uh, <laughs> it can really do some things. And I think that's the truth. We have to think what are all the things that a global flood uh, could end up doing. Um, the flood was, it was violent. It wasn't just this gentle rain that came and then left. You had, well, we'll talk about it more, but you had plate tectonics going around. You think of what a hurricane or tsunamis do, they can, you know, totally change the landscape. And this flood, I think, was a very violent act. Also, well, let me show you. Sometimes they point to some of these rock layers as evidence of the old earth. And so you see rock layers here. These rock layers are laid down you know, over the course of millions of years, one layer upon another layer. So even here, you can look at this and see evidence of a very ancient earth, correct? You know what this is actually you're looking at? This is debris that was laid down by the explosion of Mount St. Helen in 1980. This didn't take place over millions of years. Uh, this happened in a few hours when this volcano exploded. And so there are ways that quick natural catastrophes can cause some things that could be misinterpreted depending on your starting point and your presuppositions as either this is very old or something to realize this actually happened pretty quick. Now, I don't know to what degree that can explain you know, everything and what might go to the flood and what might go to the original creation, but these are things we need to take into account. Also, they have dated rocks that were formed by the lava from Mount St. Helen uh, using the potassium argon method. And some of these rocks dated with this method at 350,000 years old. Uh, they are created in 1980. Some of the elements in the rocks, they traced the constitutional elements and they dated as 2.8 million years old. And they weren't, they're created when Mount St. Helen exploded. So these are things that we need to factor in as we're thinking through all these issues. Along with this, this is a close-up of uh, the view, so you can see very fine layers as well. There are problems with the dating methods that point to an ancient earth. And the result of many methods are based on presuppositions. A presupposition is when you start with something in advance, and you say, well, we know this, and we know that the earth is really old, and so we're gonna go with that to begin with. Um, one example, and John Morris talks about this in his book on the, the old earth, that um, rocks are actually often very commonly dated by the fossils that they find near them. That they don't date them oftentimes with any type of thing. They'd say, well, what kind of fossil was found? And they look at their chart and say, well, this means it's this many million years old. But if those fossil dates are wrong, 
and sometimes when the fossils are dated by the rocks, uh, you end up you know, with, with issues going on there. Uh, some of the older other evidence, and we can't get into all of this, um, or else the earth will no longer be young by the time I finish this message. But uh, one example is ice rings. Okay, if you go up to like Greenland, they bore down into the ice that's been there for a long time, they pull it up and there's all these rings. They say there's times where you can count 800,000 of these ice rings. And so they say well, this must be at least 800,000 uh, years that went by with uh, melting and cooling uh, with this. Now, there are resources you can look to that talk about the possibilities, but as I was thinking about it, there's at least four possibilities, right? One, I guess you could say, well, they don't really exist. Maybe we're just being lied to about ice rings. I'm not saying that, and I don't think that's the case, but that's a possibility. People can manufacture evidence or claim things. Second possibility is maybe old Earth is correct. That could be a possibility, theoretically. A third, God could have created with the appearance of age. He created ice rings, and I don't know, was there a good reason for that? Maybe there is. Um, and four, could be that the facts are being interpreted incorrectly. There's the facts, and then there's how we interpret the facts. And the facts are going to be the same for everyone if people are being honest. But somebody could look at those with one presupposition and say one thing, and somebody could look at them with a different kind of set of eyeglasses and their presuppositions and say, yeah, but I can explain this a different way. And so the young earth creationists will say, well, actually, these can be laid down much quicker, and there's different times where you could end up with a lot of uh, you know, ice layers pretty quick. Um, some other things, uh, carbon-14, talk about carbon-14 dating, that can only be used on things that were once alive, and it's actually only useful for thousands of years. That doesn't work for millions of years. There's different other things, radiometric dating, and um, if you want to get into some of this in more specific, I recommend The Young Earth by John Morris or a book by Paul Garner called The New Creationism because uh, there's more detail and if you want to get into all the science of this. But these radiometric dating, you know, how uranium degrades into other elements and eventually into lead. Uh, but things you have to know, assumptions for this to work, you have to know what is the original composition and if it's, was it pure uranium, a certain isotope, or was it different? And if it's a mix, it's going to throw off your results. Was the decay rate constant? And was there no interference from something outside that could have changed this or kind of leached off the materials? And there are at least some things that, um, you know, massive amounts of water could have a big effect on that as well. There are indicators that point at least to a relatively young earth. And I'll just have to give you some of these. Um, and some have more weight than others. Uh, one read about in a few different books, including uh, Jason Lyle's book, Taking Back Astronomy, talks about comets. If you think of comets, uh, you know, Halley's Comet came back in the, in the 80s. I think if you are around, if you're able to make it to the year uh, 2061, you can see it again. So some of us might get it twice in our lifetime. Some comets take a long time to do a circle. Some just fly by and never come back. But some, like Halley's Comet, have you know, every you know, 70, 80 years. There's some you know, more or less. Uh, but the thing is, a comet, uh, you know, there's basically a ball of ice going around the sun. And the tail of the comet isn't really like a, like a fireball coming off it in the back. The tail of a comet actually always points away from the sun. 
So even if when it's flying away from the sun, the, the tail of the comet is going to go the other way because it's basically being blasted by the solar wind is, that's creating this. And comets lose a bunch of their mass every time it circles around the sun. And so what Jason Lyle, he's an astronomer, and others point out is that uh, the comets, a comet like this could last maybe a few hundred thousand years at the most, which is longer than we need, but if the universe has really been around, uh, our, let's say our solar system for several billion years, there shouldn't be any comets. There's other things, uh, the salt content in the oceans, the level of uh, sediment in the ocean, planetary rings should have dissolved by now, uh, erosion in the continents, uh, Lyle and others talk about the decaying of the Earth's magnetic field, the moon moving away from the Earth, and that um, it, the the amount that it's moving away would have had it crashing into Earth uh, too early or uh, being way too far away. Also in 2004, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, and I think this is still a legitimate thing, discovered soft tissue from a T-Rex leg, Trinosaurus Rex leg bone, that she, she interprets as being millions of years old. They say, well, how does that last? That shouldn't last for millions of years. Now I think, a caution here, I think we need to be realistic. There's no like knockdown argument for young Earth where you say this is one and it's, it's irrefutable and nobody can gainsay it. Um, and for the old earth people and uh, the secular scientists, there are replies to almost every one of these. And some might be right. I don't know if I can say, you know, as far as the earth's magnetic field, the reply to that is, well, it oscillates, it goes back and forth. So it's not just decaying down. I don't have the expertise to know if that's right or if they're just making that up. Um, but I think we need to have some humility and caution kind of with this. There are also some young earth arguments that have turned out to be not right, uh, false, and we need to make sure that we're not propagating things. Answers in Genesis has a list of arguments to avoid and some that have been used in the past, uh, saying that there, uh, the dust on the moon should have accumulated, that it would have this, uh, you know, the Apollo lander should have just sunk in this. Um, now they realize there's other things to explain why it's only a, a little bit of dust on the moon. It was once argued that entropy didn't start until the fall. Now they realize that that wouldn't work. Also some things I remember being taught about dinosaur and human footprints being found at the same time. We're where looking at some of the young earthers now, they say, yeah, some of this is, is too sketchy and don't kind of lean on those. So I think we need to make sure that we're not doing that because that makes that position just look foolish. You know, if people can say, well, this argument's bad, so all of your arguments must be bad. But also realize it's not ultimately the, the scientific arguments that are probably going to convince you that this argument is true anyways. I think it fits with what good science says, but at least right now there might not be enough to like uh, take someone that is determined to believe something different and to force them into believing this. And again, that is because often you are going to see what your presuppositions tell you. You're going to see what you want to see. I mentioned the, the comets. One of the replies to this is that, well, the comets, they come from the Oort cloud, that way out in space beyond the Kuiper belt, there's this Oort cloud, it's a reservoir of comets, and that's where these comets come from. And I thought, well, yeah, I've heard of the Oort cloud, and you know, I'm into astronomy, and I like that type of stuff. But as I looked into it, I found out the Oort cloud is completely theoretical. It was an idea that was invented to explain why there's still comets. Now, maybe there is an Oort cloud, okay? 
but just realize it's not just the young earth that are saying, you know, coming up with stuff to explain their view. This goes on both ways. Um, so people see sometimes what their presuppositions tell them. So to wrap this up, the big strength of young earth is that it is the most natural reading of Genesis 1. And this would be the strongest reason to hold a young earth position. And it's also the assumed reading for most of church history with a few exceptions. Another, I think, big strength, and some of these are subjective to me, is that it best takes into account the effects of the, the fall and Noah's flood. That some of these others don't really deal with as much as they should. Uh, some old earth believe in a global flood. Some believe in a, a lot believe in like a local flood. Instead, thinking of the fall, I'm okay with cell death or plant death and even death of lower life forms. And I could even see possibly saying, well, okay, you could have a good food chain in God's creation. But you start talking about animal death and definitely not human death. At time I was wondering, you know, could I make fit that in? But from what I understand, I mean, there are fossils of animals that are supposed to be before the fall where they found cancer in these animals. Okay? And so to have that be the view, that would mean that what cancer was part of God's very good creation, I just, I can't square that. I can't think of that. That's something that is a result of the fall. And therefore, I think a young earth view, that's a huge advantage that it has, that these things, death and disease and all that comes from it, take into account what the Bible says. Um, I think, too, if you believed in the flood, I remember thinking, I don't know about, you know, a global flood. If you had a global flood, it seems like there should be, like, giant trenches in the earth from the runoff. You would see, like, fossils of, like, fish and, you know, stuff, like, on top of mountains and in plains, you know, where there's no ocean. And you know what? Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Grand Canyon, there are giant trenches. And they have found fossils of fish on Mount Everest and in the Great Plains. So there's that. The difficulty is it, okay, it does conflict with the, at least the dominant scientific interpretation of the age of the earth. And we've got to realize that. That's something. The biggest difficulty, and this is one that I, I still wrap my mind around a little bit, is the, the starlight problem. That distant starlight would have taken billions of years to arrive here. This is a picture of Andromeda galaxy, closest galaxy, main galaxy to us. Well, Andromeda is 2.5 million light years away. Light can only go the speed of light. That would mean that this is actually a picture of something, Andromeda the way it looked 2.5 million years ago. Um, and there's some things we see in space that are 13 billion years. Now, my original thought you know, on this was, well, I don't have a problem with that. God created things with just the light on the way already. So that's okay. But then I realized, you know, there's some things. You see galaxies that are, like, smashed into each other, or being destroyed. I mean, this is one, two galaxies. And there's supernovas, you know, stars that have just exploded. And that's why most young Earth don't use that explanation, because it would seem deceptive for God to have light come to us of a star that's never actually been there, because it was destroyed. Um, there are no perfect answers to this, but there are some possible solutions. Uh, Morris and Whitcomb said that maybe there's a shortcut through space. Some propose that the speed of light used to be faster. There are problems with both of those views and they're not really used much anymore. Jason Lyle, astronomer, uh, speculates that the one-way speed of light is instantaneous and we can only measure light with a return trip. 
And it seems to others to be very radical and ad hoc and have problems, but we can't get into all the details. Uh, there's one, I remember reading about this in college, Dale Humphreys has a book called Starlight and Time, and he talks about a time dilation theory. He mentions that, according to Einstein, time is kind of elastic. We think of it all being the same, but clocks can run differently at different places. In fact, gravity, if you get close to a black hole, your time's gonna run slower, okay? Um, and so that seems to be true. And also, the further you are away from gravity, so actually, they've done experiments. Clocks run faster the higher up you are, okay? Um, slightly, it's almost imperceivable, which means, yeah, that uh, you know, tall people are gonna age quicker, okay? <laughs> Just letting you know. <clears throat> but also, we talked about with Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, that maybe you've heard this, that if you have two twins, you put one in a spaceship, you send them out traveling the speed of light for a while, and you come back, maybe he's just a little bit older, but his twin is now an old man, because time is just kind of different. It's relativity with Einstein. It can't go into all this, but uh, even most young Earth creationists say, yep, there's something to that. There's truth. And so in this view, he speculates that what happened is that if God quickly stretched out the heavens during creation from the earth, uh, like it says Psalm 104.2, it could result in time moving rapidly in space and slower on the earth. Thus, this would result in basically a young earth with an ancient universe that's out there. This is a young earth view. It's, uh, Ken Ham gives an endorsement to it. I don't know if it's correct. And scientists, they debate this. That seems you know, fascinating. You have a young earth, you have an old creation. I don't know what that makes you. And I'll just say, at this point, God's handiwork is beyond me. There are complicated things. We are given information that's true, and I think reality doesn't contradict it, but there's more going on here than I think what we know or that we could handle. And if he gave us everything, I don't think we could keep up with it. So I'm okay with a few question marks. I think we should have humility, and I'm not going to throw out my Bible, and I think neither should you. Don't limit the power and the creativity of God. God is beyond us. Finish with one verse. And I give this not to promote one view of uh, creation or another, but it's just that God is beyond us. And I want to make the point that we can talk about days and what they mean, and, but the most important thing for you to realize is that there was a day when the Son of God hung on the cross for you. And there's a day when he will return. And today is the day for you to turn to him and be saved. And in Scripture... It says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Trust God. Turn to him. Trust the one that hung on the cross for your salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise and thanks. There are things that are beyond us and question marks we have, but we thank you that you know the answer to all of our question marks. We will continue to trust you. We will continue to believe you and just thank you for creating this amazing world that we can explore and how it points to you. We thank you even more for the word that you've given us, scripture, that points to you in a way that is unerring, Lord God. Thank you for the salvation of Christ. You came, you died the people that turn to you can be saved, and we long for your return and for the new creation that you will bring one day. 
In the name of Christ we pray, amen.